as a society, we emit right now about 40 gigatons, so 40 billion tons of CO2 per year. Um, and so, you know, right, the thought is we have to get that down to something much more manageable, uh, you know, so as low as possible. Uh, but, you know, it'll still probably be a few billion tons a year. Hopefully, eventually it gets down to zero or close to zero. You know, then there's still billions of tons of CO2 that need to be removed. I'm Alex Bloomberg, host of the podcast Startup, and you're listening to We Are LA Tech. My name is Esprit Devora, born and raised L.A., and I created We Are L.A. Tech in 2012 to unify the community. Podcast launched in 2014, continuing to help people find the best talent, to connect with each other, to form awesome relationships. So proud of this show. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Brian Swishko of One Inc. We are a creative cohort and storytelling studio based in Los Angeles. I've been a listener of the We Are LA Tech podcast since the beginning. I've been a member of the We Are LA Tech community since the beginning. I am so happy and grateful to have known Esprit and watched the genesis of both. Um, but I've remained a listener because of the warmth that she shares with her listeners and her audience, but also the space that she makes uh, for her, her guests and the stories that come from that. And then also to know that those stories aren't just stories, they aren't just content, uh, they're a part of a community and that community is something that can be experienced in so many different ways and the times that I've been able to meet other people and connect with them from the community have resulted in meaningful relationships and potent business partnerships and you know, at so many situations where I can track back person to person, situation to situation over months and years. Um, and, and just point to Esprit as the catalyst for, for what, you know, you look back and it's just, it's just magic. Uh, I'm so happy and grateful for Esprit and the We Are LA Tech community. I will continue listening, participating, and happily cheering for a very long time to come. And hello, and welcome back to the We Are LA Tech podcast, spotlighting LA tech companies and talent. Uh, really thrilled to uh, have uh, uh, Glenn on today. But before I introduce him, uh, I am Dave Whalen, uh, one of the, the guest hosts for We Are LA Tech. Been uh, part of the LA Tech ecosystem for many years. Been part of the We Are LA Tech podcast several times uh, in different contexts. And really thrilled to be able to be uh, helping to support We Are LA Tech and Esprit Devora as a guest host. I'll share more about Bioscience LA a bit as uh, as we go and we talk about Glenn's story and where we've crossed paths. But without further ado, uh, Glenn Myrowitz, uh, hello, welcome, and uh, would love to have you just kick off with a bit about, uh, you know, tell us your name and uh, uh, your company, but then uh, take me back to sort of, you know, what you were doing years ago and kind of how it led to today. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Dave. It's, it's great to be here and great to get to catch up again and, uh, and chat. It's always fun. So yeah, uh, Glenn Marowitz, uh, founder of Clarity Technology. Uh, we're, we're a new company working in the carbon dioxide removal space, uh, specifically developing technology for direct air capture of carbon dioxide. Uh, would love to get into that and kind of walk, walk you and all the listeners through that in much more detail. Um, but yeah, some, some background on myself. Um, so, so my, my undergrad degree was actually in physics. Uh, when I first got to college, my thought was that I wanted to be a theoretical physicist and go go to grad school, get a PhD, and spend my whole life doing physics. And then I spent a summer uh, in a research lab working with theoretical physicists, and I saw how excited and happy they were every day to come in and do theoretical physics. Uh, and it became very clear to me quickly that, in fact, uh, was not uh, uh, going to be a good fit to be a theoretical physicist. Yeah, and I'm, by the way, I'm just going to say that you know, according to according to LinkedIn, you have a you know a BS not just in physics but in intensive physics, which sounds like the extreme sports of physics or something. Yeah, it's one of those things. I always I always debate about do I include that or do I? It, it was it was the real name of the major, um, but what does it mean? I I still have no idea. And so and so then in college. Uh, I realized that that my real passion was for building things, for for creating hardware, uh, and getting to work on projects where where I would have 
a personal impact, you know, as as opposed to being part of a gigantic uh, scientific collaboration with 10,000 plus people. Very important. And it's great that there are individuals out there who find that exciting and are, are, are uh, uh, able to get up every day and do that. But, but that was not the path that I personally wanted to take. Um, so by the time that I realized uh, that and I wanted to, to spend more time in engineering, I'd actually already finished most of that intensive physics major. Uh, and so I decided not to not to change majors and study mechanical or, or electrical engineering and simply focus on some coursework in the area, uh, spend a lot of my uh, uh, time outside of classes in engineering groups. And so that was things such as uh, the, the aerospace uh, association at our, at our school, uh, engineers, though borders, which is a fantastic opportunity. Uh, for most of my senior year, I spent time, uh, in, in this university rover competition where you, you essentially build something that goes out to, uh, the, the desert in the middle of nowhere, Utah, a place that simulates Mars. And then you, uh, compete on a number of challenges. And, and so, so yeah, that was, that was how I spent most of my, of my undergrad kind of learning practical technical skills, uh, in the hopes that it would help me land a job when I graduated. Uh, I was lucky that, that when I did graduate in 2014, uh, I was able to, to start at SpaceX just a few months after, after, um, I, I finished my undergrad. And so I moved out to Waco, Texas. Uh, where I joined the the test engineer team out in Texas. And so SpaceX is headquartered here in Los Angeles. Um, but you can't fire rockets in the middle of downtown LA, go figure. So they ship all the fun stuff out to out to Texas. Uh, and so we got to fire rocket engines pretty much every day, multiple rocket engines a day. Uh, and I was there for about five years developing test systems for rocket and spacecraft propulsion systems. Uh, a phenomenal learning experience. You know, really couldn't imagine a better first opportunity for a young engineer out of college uh, than to get to work on that. Yeah, that's 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 pretty cool. And uh, um, aside from, uh, I I will. Well, I don't know. How, how did you how did you like uh, how did you like Waco? Uh, it was, uh... Five years in Waco seems like a long time, but yeah. yeah, you know when I when I first got there, my so so I'm, I'm originally from New York, um, and I was certainly not. Uh, it was not. It was not on my radar to kind of end up in Waco for a number of years, uh, as, as you can imagine. Um, but when I when I got there, uh, you know, my my original plan was kind of to to spend maybe one or two years there, and then see if I could use that, you know, as as leverage to get out to SpaceX headquarters in Los Angeles you know, or to a different job. Uh, and I loved it. You know, it was, it was a fantastic job. The, the folks who I worked with were some of the, the smartest, most capable engineers, uh, technicians, uh, uh, project managers, planners who I've ever met, uh, you know, doing really amazing things. And of course, you know, right. The community of Waco was also growing a lot during that time. Kind of when I got there, Running Games started their their TV show, and kind of there was a, a, a revitalization of the downtown Waco area. You know, it's like I actually had some friends from uh, from from high school, you know, out out in New York, who like came to visit Waco, not to see me, but to see Chip and Joanna Gaines uh, <laughs> store. And everything. Wow, yeah, on the side, that's awesome. That's that's pretty awesome. Yeah, as you said, what a what a great what a great first job out of uh, you know out of college. If you are allowed to uh, reveal it, uh, did you uh, did you ever have a uh, engineering review encounter with uh, you know any any you know famous uh, CEOs of any kind? Yeah, there were there were there were a few meetings that I had uh, where there were direct presentations uh, with Elon or to Elon uh, on a few key projects. You know, I think I think there were probably only two or three over the years that I were there. Uh, but yeah, you know, he was he was involved in a handful of projects. Uh, high visibility and kind of for the last two years, my focus was on test systems for the Crew Dragon spacecraft. And so that's uh, what's currently the the only uh, U.S. vehicle that's carrying astronauts to and from the space station. They're replacing the Crew Shuttle um, and and the only Crew certified vehicle uh, that that the U.S. has at the moment. Um, and so so he was uh, uh, involved in a lot of those high level decisions. Uh, and, and kind of, you know, uh, we, we had the opportunity, uh, to, to, to make presentations to him on, on various decisions and, and things that we were working on. Nice. So yeah, again, sort of, you know, you, very singular opportunity. Not many people can say <laughs> they've been, you know, been part of that experience. Uh, so, so you're, uh, you're, you're in Waco, you're there for longer than you thought you would be. Um, and you still have not gotten to Los Angeles. So what, uh, what happens next? 
Yeah. So, so kind of towards, towards the end of my time there, I was looking and, and trying to understand what other opportunities and what other things were there that I wanted to do, you know, and, and really one of the things that I enjoyed uh, during my undergrad was being, being at this large research institution with people with very different backgrounds, uh, you know, having a, an entrepreneurial spirit um, and, and kind of getting to, to set your own path instead of the path that that's kind of laid out for you, uh, you know, in, in a, in a traditional career. And so that, uh, I, I made the decision that I wanted to go back to grad school, um, finally get that engineering degree. Uh, and so I started applying to different programs, uh, mainly in electrical and uh, computer engineering. Uh, and it was, it was mainly on the West coast, uh, where I, where I wanted to end up. Um, and so, so after about five years, just under five years at SpaceX, I left, uh, after I'd submitted all my applications to grad school, uh, and I had an opportunity, there were, there were some folks who I knew who were at a, a company doing self-driving, uh, uh, vehicles, which was an area that was really interesting to me, uh, at the time, and I, and I guess still interesting to me. Uh, and so I spent a few months doing that, uh, after I left SpaceX when I submitted my uh, application to grad school, but before I knew where I was going. Um, and so during that time, uh, I was at a company that's based in San Diego and I was splitting my time between San Diego and Tucson, Arizona, um, working on, on the self-driving semi-trucks. Uh, I was there for, for about eight months or so before starting grad work, uh, at UCLA in electrical engineering. Awesome. It was UCLA. Was that your, uh, was that, you know, absolutely where you wanted to be? Um, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I am biased as a, you know, as a UCLA, uh, alum as well, but, uh, you know, incredible school, but, uh, was it, was it LA? Was it UCLA? Uh, what was kind of the draw? Yeah. You know, it was, I was, I was very much looking for something on the, on the West coast in Southern California, you know, so UCLA, UCSD, uh, you know, programs like that. Um, I, I really liked the the uh, uh, broad nature of the programs and the interdisciplinary nature of the programs at UCLA. You know, it's certainly it's a it's a top engineering program. Um, so, you know, I, I think I was I was almost less at, at the time. I think I was less uh, concerned kind of about the, the name of the program and where I was. Um, but certainly in hindsight, you know, it was, a, it was a phenomenal place to be. The network, the connections, being in L.A., getting to meet people like you, uh, you know, has been invaluable. And uh, don't tell this to my professors, but, you know, I would say, you know, more valuable than kind of what I learned in the classes. Uh, and <laughs> Yeah, well, the you know, the, the, I think the network, the network is always important and, you know, certainly in, in, in grad school. And I, and I agree. I, mean, I think UCLA is an incredible network. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it as we talk in a, you know, a couple of minutes here. But. Um, you know, UCLA is such a large institution and it, it's itself part of the University of California, which is a large institute, you know, mega institution. I mean, you know, UC is probably the, the, you know, the, the most prominent academic institution in, a, in the world. If you look at the entire UC system and sort of Nobel laureates and, uh, you know, research going on, NIH funding and things like that. But, uh, you know, UCLA, it's just, it is this very interconnected kind of thing. And, uh, um, you know, when we when we talk a little bit about some of the programs you've been part of there, I think that's where that kind of really comes, uh, um, you know, comes comes to shine. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. It's a, it's a fantastic place to be and to spend a, a, a number of years. Yeah. So uh, so what what's the you know, what was the program like at, at, U, at UCLA sort of, uh, you know, what, and what were you really you know, what were you expecting to do? You wanted to get back into the research world, but sort of what was, what was your goal? Um, or was it really just to learn and kind of see, see what happened? Yeah. You know, I, I came in with, with kind of some, some very clear desires and goals, uh, you know, and you can kind of even, even check my email send, uh, record from before class started, uh, you know, in, 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 uh, uh August, September of 2019, uh, trying to get things set up and trying to make connections across campus, um, and, and really make the most of my time while I was there. So, um, my, my degree program was in electrical and computer engineering. Um, and I was, you know, really excited about taking classes, uh, you know, on, on things like, you know, big data, AI, customized computing for AI applications. Uh, you know, a lot of these buzzwords kind of, you know, right, that we hear about now, you know, from things like GPUs to FPGAs to ASICs, et cetera, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the hardware that underpins some of these, you know, next generation futuristic technology that's going to be kind of, 
some of the most important things uh, uh, in in the the the, re- the rest of the century. Uh, but then I was also really excited to to kind of form some of these entrepreneurial connections and get to 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 meet other individuals across campus who are interested in, in things as well, and in you know in working with early stage companies and potentially forming a company. And so you know I was reaching out to people uh, at Anderson at the business school at UCLA trying to, uh, you know, set up meetings, trying to get on some of their email lists, trying to uh, engage with them more, trying to set up. Because it's interesting, right? Even though there are so many different groups across UCLA, there's not as much um, synergy and connection as you want, you know? And, and I think, uh, hopefully I can say this because I'm coming from the engineering side. I think a lot of that is from the engineering campus, right? Where, you know, the engineers feel very comfortable in their labs and their research groups. And, are, you know, there's some hesitancy to, to kind of travel outside of that bubble. Yeah, although, you know, I will say, you know, you know, having having gone to Anderson and, you know, I, I went to Anderson, uh, you know, t- 20 years ago. So things have definitely changed in that time, including, you know, you know biodesign and things like that. But, um, you know, when I was at Anderson, you know, and I had moved to Los Angeles to go to business school. So I kind of, you know, my, my sort of my first time in L.A. is at Anderson and. Um, probably for the, you know, the entire two years I was in business school, you know, I would have, I would have said I'm at Anderson and not said I was at UCLA, uh, you know, it just so happens I'm, I really am not a, uh, you know, I'm not a huge uh, college basketball fan. So uh, if I were a bigger basketball fan, I might have more of a, you know, a UCLA connection, but, uh, you know, I think Panda Express at the, you know, Ackerman Union is kind of like my deepest connection to UCLA, the the school, because, you know, Anderson didn't necessarily do that, that outreach. And I think it's been over the past 20 years that we've started to see engineering and medicine and business and public health and these different organizations come together. So, uh, um, you know, I, but you know, as you're pointing out, though, maybe still not, you know, not enough. There's room for improvement. Yeah, you know, right. It's it's hard to it's hard because because it's also right. Like you know, everyone kind of wants to 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 control their own ecosystem, and so there's some challenges, you know, right. And kind of who who's running it is someone a participant is it an equal control? Um, but yeah, you know, it was it was it was really fun for me to kind of get to shape some of that and make those connections and and start meeting people really as soon as I got to campus. Um, you know, I think I think the the biggest issue with that right was I started in 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 what september october of 2019 so there was two three months kind of before campus shut down uh because of of covid in early 2020 uh yeah um and so or in, in 2020, 2020 yeah um and so, yeah you know and and so that was just uh that that really threw a wrench in kind of my entire plans you know because then everything went remote um, the people that I was trying to meet, the, the things I was trying to, to do and the folks I was trying to connect with, you know, right. Like there were, that was not happening. Anymore. Um, yeah. Although that also, that also opened up opportunities, right. Cause I think, uh, I correct me if I'm wrong, but we, so we connected because you were working on a ventilator project and, uh, and somehow, so, somehow we ended up getting connected. I don't even remember exactly how, and I had just. I had just come up on board as a CEO of Bioscience LA and uh, thinking I was going to be focusing on big long-term innovations. And suddenly I was focused on ventilators and PPE and things like that. Uh, and so, and so were you. Yeah. Right. And so, and so, yeah, obviously, you know, everything, everything happens for a reason. Um, and so right before uh, uh, everything shut down at UCLA with COVID, uh, I connected with with the folks at UCLA who were who were starting this brand new program here uh, called the Biodesign Program, which is modeled out of a similar program at Stanford. Um, and so this was in, in twenty the the twenty nineteen to twenty twenty academic year, right? So September through June or something like that uh, was the first year of the Biodesign Program uh, at UCLA. And it's been going at Stanford for about two decades. Uh, and then there's, you know, other similar programs across the country and in, and in a few spots outside the U.S. as well. Um, and so so I got to to meet the co-directors of the program at the time, uh, who were Desert Horse Grant and then Dr. Jennifer McKinney, uh, who, were, who were running the program. And so I'd applied to be part of the second cohort. Uh, but then, of course, you know, right in, in early 2020, uh, everything kind of took a, took a sharp left turn. 
Um, and, and that was when, you know, things started shutting down, uh, COVID cases started, started rising, you know, and it was, it was very unclear. And what is, what's going to happen? What's going on? Um, what is, what, you know, kind of what's the response to all this going to be? And, you know, I, I kind of took that opportunity to, to do some research, to, to make some connections. So my brother actually happens to be uh, an infectious disease physician, uh, currently in New York. He was in Boston at the time. And so he and I were chatting, you know, kind of in January, February, um, about, about this new, this new disease that was, that was kind of getting, getting, starting to get on the radars. And, and then I started chatting with him. He connected me with a number of, of, uh, friends and colleagues in, in other areas of medicine. And then I tried to leverage the connections at UCLA as well to start to talk with, uh, you know, physicians, mainly pulmonologists, uh, kind of to, to understand and, and gauge the, 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 the kind of perspective that people had on like, you know, what's, what's the next few years, or I guess at that point, maybe we just thought months going to look like, right? Back at some of the project the projections that we had of like, oh, you know, right, like when the surges were going to be and then everything is going to die down and then we're going to be fine by, you know, a few months after when, when COVID's not a thing anymore. Yeah. Cause I mean, also just, just in the context, you're, I mean, you're, you're getting involved with this, but uh, um, I mean, you are, you know, you're a systems guy, so you're hardware and software. I mean, you know, you, you went to grad school to spend time in a lab um, and, and labs were open, not open. What was the situation kind of at UCLA and at this moment? Yeah, everything on campus was shut down, you know. So, so you know, I I had hardware. I have you know punches, uh, 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 soldering irons in my in my apartment, in my <laughs> apartment where I was. And so you know, right? I I wasn't able to get access to anything on campus, you know. And so you know, I started prototyping and making things on. Uh, using, using tools in my, in my apartment. Um, you know, I was, I was, you know, working on, on building prototype ventilators and I got a little air compressor from Home Depot so I could be running tests, uh, you know, using there to, to, to simulate that, you know, and, and literally, right, you know, it was this, it was this, you know, pancake air compressor that was very loud whenever it was on and running. So I would always try to, you know, try to, try to, use, use the compressed air as, as efficiently as I could. And then whenever I needed to turn it on, I, I ran a 50 foot extension cord from my apartment out into, out into the parking lot and I carried it outside and I like held it by the handle and annoying one. And then I'd run back inside and do another 30 minutes of testing before I'd have to, before I'd have to bring, bring the air compressor back outside again and, uh, and, and fill it back up. It was, it was, it was a, 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 a very funny, funny learning experience, you know, and, and, you know, kind of, kind of trying to figure out, right, you know, what, what can we do in a, in a time where there's so much uncertainty, uh, to, to hopefully have a positive impact, you know, right. And, and back then, right, it really was ventilators, you know, was what people thought was going to be the, the shortage that could lead to huge issues for the health system in the U.S. and abroad. Um, you know, and so we put a team together that was meeting regularly, working on, on, uh, advancing the technology, excuse me, working on, um, fundraising, working on, uh, uh, trying to get to the FDA so we could get emergency use authorization for the device, which we, we did submit to the FDA, but unfortunately we, we, we were not approved for emergency use authorization. So, you know, and, and it was, it was just a very difficult time, you know, cause everyone and their mom was working a new ventilator. And so it was just really tough, you know, and so, so that project didn't, didn't end up getting much traction. Um, and so, so, you know, after, after a handful of months, we, we decided to put that on pause. Uh, but it was, you know, it was a phenomenal learning experience. It was kind of a, a great way to really get your feet wet in the med device, med tech space, uh, you know, to do a deep dive on this, on this really complex field of, of medicine and physiology that I knew nothing about, uh, before that, you know, and also to get to build some, some fun hardware and cool tools. Yeah. And I guess the, the FDA experience as well. I mean, how much of, uh, you know, how much of that kind of in the, the heat of the moment, you know, in pandemic, uh, you know, EUA kind of process, how much of that translates to, I guess, you know, today, someone just applying, you know, applying for, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, FDA, uh, you know, certification process. I mean, is that a, is that a good model for working with the FDA in general? Yeah, you know, I, I think it was, it was a really interesting, interesting experience from, from my side where, so, so that was really my first interactions with the FDA as a, uh, a producer of a device, um, you know, instead of kind of as a, on, on the consumer side. And, and it was something where, 
it was a great learning experience because the the documentation and paperwork and processing for the EUA for the emergency use authorization is significantly less than a traditional 510k PM is. So it was kind of a, a great way to learn about the process and what's required. But then also, you know, at the same time to understand, you know, because because it was a tremendous amount of paperwork and documentation still, but it was just, you know, a, a fraction of what it would be if you were submitting, a, you know, a device for for real approval. Um, and so, you know, I think that was a really interesting experience for me to kind of learn that uh, and then really to understand what it means and the burden if you want to bring a real medical device to market for, you know, for, for consumers, not just something that's going to be used in an emergency. So it was, it was definitely a, 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 a eye-opening experience for me. Awesome. No, again, it's great. You know, and again, you, you don't want to have to, you know, be dealing with a pandemic and dealing with these, uh, you know, this kind of the, the chaos and the emergency situation, but hopefully you learn a lot from that. And, uh, um, I do want to, I do want to kind of, uh, you know, jump to what you're working on now. But before we do that, I, I definitely want to, uh, you know, make sure we're kind of talking about some of the resources because, you know, you, you were part of the UCLA Biodesign program. You've been part of uh, MedTech Innovator. Uh, and, you know, those two programs are one, two of my, you know, two of my favorite sort of resources we have in LA and where we're just, we're really lucky to have UCLA in that program. And then we're lucky to have, uh, you know, Paul Grand and the whole team at MedTech Innovator, which is here in LA, but, you know, is a global, you know, it's the wor world's largest MedTech accelerator program. And so how did you get involved with, with that and kind of, you know, what were those two experiences like in terms of preparing you for what's next? Yeah, so so uh, as I said, I had the opportunity to apply to be a UCLA Biodesign Fellow, uh, and so I was accepted as part of their second cohort. Um, and so that was in the 2020 to 2021 academic year. Um, that was that was a, a really fascinating opportunity for me. You know, I, I think it's 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 always tough to be uh, part of an, an, an early part of a program because you know right there's it's still trying to find its legs uh and and there's a lot that still needs to be developed right and so so kind of depending on who you are it's it's whether you know you can kind of get a good experience out of it or or it's or it's not a great experience and for me that was that was a phenomenal experience right because i was able to actually kind of shape some of the decisions and policies and things that that are done in the program uh by being a fellow and by being highly involved and so you know right it's it's one of those things where kind of you get out what you put in uh and if you are highly motivated then it can it can be a phenomenal experience um and it was certainly something right where i kind of had already done like you know a a, a biodesign light uh rapid experience with with the ventilator project previously so i'm familiar with a lot of the concepts as well which i think certainly helped and then during my time as as a biodesign fellow, uh, I also got to join the MedTech Innovator team led by Paul Grand, as you mentioned. Uh, so so as a fellow there, which is essentially just a glorified intern, um, and got to work with their team. And so you know that was that was a, a, a really fantastic experience for me as well because as an as a as a fellow there, I got to help with the diligence and the reviews of pitches for the MedTech Innovator uh, program, right? And so they receive, I don't, I don't know what the number is, but it's, it's on the order of like a thousand applications a year. Uh, you know, and then they, they select, you know, 300 of them to kind of come and, and pitch. And then they, you know, whittle that down to 30 or, or, or something like that. You know, these are approximate numbers. Um, and so, you know, I got to, to watch uh, dozens, potentially, you know, on the order of like a hundred pitches um, and I was sitting in the room and then, you know, I got to hear the questions that the judges asked, right? And, you know, these are judges who are, uh, you know, investors in med tech and life sciences, right? Who work at some of these major companies, you know, who are, who are, you know, at Edwards Life Sciences, at J&J, uh, &J, you know, right? At, at some of the leaders in the, in the, in the space. Um, and, and I got to hear the questions that they asked as well. And, you know, that was just such a phenomenal experience, right? Cause, cause, Typically, right, if you are a founder, you have to do 100 pitches to get 100 pitch worth questions of like, oh, these are the things people ask. And I got to hear that over the course of like, you know, two months or something like that, just going from pitch to pitch to pitch. And then even more valuable for me was I got to remain in the room after they kicked the founder out for judge deliberation. 
And then, you know, I got to hear the judges talk about, oh, this is this is what he said that we liked. And this is what, you know, this person said that we didn't like. Um, and so you got to understand kind of what are the things in pitches that are important? Uh, how do you respond to questions? You know, how do you think about these things um, and really see a part of that that's very, uh, it's very opaque to someone on the outside. And this was kind of super valuable experience for me, you know, and I think it's also super important to note that while this was in med tech, these skills and these things are applicable to any industry, really, you know, right? Obviously, there's going to be certain things that are very specific, right, you know, on the regulatory side, et cetera. But broadly speaking, you know, right, understanding how judges react to you, uh, to things you say, to, to answer questions, you know, is such a valuable thing to learn. And to get to learn it with someone else's mistakes instead of my own was phenomenal. Uh, so it was it was really, really great for me to get to do that. So, you know, I, I really appreciated having the opportunity to work with Paul and the entire team at MTI. You know, it's 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 a great spot as well for early stage med tech companies uh, who need the advice and the guidance and the networking. You know, they have a, they have phenomenal resources and tools set up. Uh, and so, you know, certainly if 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 you're running an early stage med tech team, and this is what I say, you know, now to to companies that come out of UCLA Biodesign, is it should be on all their radars to to apply. You know, even if you think you're too early, you can get really good feedback, which can help you in the following year when it's going to be better. Um, and so, you know, it's a it's a phenomenal opportunity. Yeah, no, I t- totally agree. And they, you know, this past year they launched BioTools Innovator, which is. Uh, you know, companion program that's more focused on software and tools that, you know, can support both both the med tech world, but also the biotech world. So, you know, genomics and, and, and things like that. So they're they're really expanding, uh, you know, data analytics, some of the stuff you talked about, you know, big data, you know, machine learning, things like that. They've got a just a really great set of programs. Um, so you've spent all this time uh, learning about, uh, you know, health tech, medical innovation in L.A. Um, and you're now working on something that uh, I'm going to say it's, it's still I'm going to I'm going to put it into the broad category of health and wellness because it certainly touches on that. But, you know, something a little bit bigger. So we'd love to hear about how uh, how Clarity came about. Yeah, definitely. So so I uh, I've always been interested in the climate tech climate space broadly. You know, um, kind of when I think about climate change, you know, right, it is the existential threat of our time. Um, particularly living in Southern California, you know, this is something that we see in real time. There are wildfires caused by drought, uh, but you can even read the news and this is something, right? You know, there's, there's the impacts of climate change are clear across the U.S. and across the globe, right? From floods, fires, hurricanes, you name it. Um, and this is something that's becoming more and more, uh, prevalent in, in our daily lives and in conversations. And, and this is something that I've been aware about for, again, you know, for, for, forever. And I've, I've tried to think about, you know, in, in recent years, kind of what's the way I can get involved and I can, I can make an impact. Um, and, and it's been hard for me to answer that because the scale of the problem is so significant and, you know, it, the, the amount of money required is so significant. And it's also something that, you know, there's, there's policy decisions that need to be made, right? Where even if you build the best widget, uh, that may not matter if, if it doesn't fit into existing policy, into, into frameworks, into, into decisions that want to be made, you know, and this is not just about kind of one political party or administration, you know, this is going to be something that spans decades. And spans not only the United States, but every country around the globe. And so, you know, there are these huge, huge factors that that kind of determine the entire state of the climate change industry. Um, And so so I was always interested, but never knew kind of how to engage. And then in late 2021, early 2022, um, I had a a fantastic opportunity to, to reconnect with some friends of friends, uh, from college uh, and put a small group together with the intent at the time of kind of looking at the carbon dioxide removal space broadly and trying to understand the pros and the cons of various approaches. Uh, the goal was not necessarily to start a company then. You know, I think that was something that we were very open to and excited if, if that did happen, but it was kind of just to, to understand what are people doing, what can be done, uh, and what if any of these approaches are going to work? And so essentially, right, you know, there's there's a few different ways that people think about mitigating the effects of climate change. And so one of them, of course, is, you know, hey, we need to stop emitting carbon 
uh, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere as quickly as possible, right? And so this is decarbonization. And so, right, trading in your, your gas car for an electric car or a hybrid is great. Driving less is even better, right? Changing your diet is great. Flying less is great, you know, getting a heat pump, uh, you know, removing a gas burner or a gas stove, right? You know, these are kind of all things on the individual level. And then there are certainly much broader societal things that can be done as well, right? You know, solar, wind, you know, kind of any of these, any of these renewables, um, you know, nuclear power. But the general consensus is that even if we do rapid decarbonization, uh, right? So, you know, we're, 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 we've already emitted so much CO2, you know, over a trillion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere since the industrial revolution, you know, with most of that just being in the last few decades, um, that even if we stopped and got to zero emissions today, there's still too much carbon in the atmosphere. And realistically, we're not going to be at zero today, right? You know, we're going to continue to emit into the future. There are these difficult to decarbonize industries, right? You know, so things like, uh, you know, long distance shipping, um, uh, uh, international flights, even long distance flights within the U.S., um, you know, steel, concrete. And so doing everything you can to try to decrease emissions as much as possible. But then there's also going to be the need to remove uh, historic emissions and then even continue to remove the emissions from some of these industries that are hard to decarbonize. And so as a, as a society, we emit right now about 40 gigatons, so 40 billion tons of CO2 per year. Um, and so, you know, right, the thought is we have to get that down to something much more manageable, uh, you know, so as low as possible, uh, but, you know, it'll still probably be a few billion tons a year. Hopefully, eventually it gets down to zero or close to zero. Um, but, you know, then there's still billions of tons of CO2 that need to be removed. And so there's all these different approaches that are being taken. So this is kind of what we started looking at is, you know, right, it's, it's things that range from, okay, what would happen if we went out and we tried to plant a trillion trees? to can we change the pH of the ocean? Uh, you know, can we do, you know, things like biochar, right? Where you, you essentially, you know, take and heat up all this, this, this biomass and then you, you lock the carbon into something that's not susceptible to wildfire or other types of, uh, release. Uh, and then there's kind of these much more industrial forms of carbon removal, uh, which are direct air capture. And so direct air capture is something where essentially you have some kind of chemical media that selectively adsorbs carbon dioxide. So you, you blow air over this, it selectively captures CO2 and it bonds it in some way. The specifics of that depend a lot on the materials. And there's a lot of different groups working on this with different materials. And then you apply energy in some specific way. When you apply energy, that causes CO2 to be released, right? And so you're capturing the CO2 from the air and then you're applying energy to release it and to, to concentrate it in some form where you can then do do something with it or get rid of it in some way. Um, and so um, that's what we ended up ended up focusing on, you know, right? If you look at kind of the, the pros and cons of all these various approaches, direct air capture, it's it's one of the more risky technologies right now, right? Like we're, we're still in the early days of this, but it's something where, you know, as an industrial process, you can quantify how much CO2 you're removing. You can really understand what you're doing. And then when you get it, you can find ways to durably sequester that CO2 and more than happy to kind of, you know, dive into this in, in, in as much detail as you want, where you can be confident that, hey, this is going to be out of the atmosphere for 10,000 plus years, right? Whereas, you know, if you go and plant a trillion trees, first off, that's super hard to do. You know, there, there's this great NASA report out there. So we take thousands of years to plant trillions of trees, right? So it's not like you can just go and get that done tomorrow. Um, and, and then these trees are something, you know, for the most part, right. They only last for 50 years or something before they decay or, you know, in California, right. There's a wildfire that can release that CO2 back into the atmosphere. And so, you know, there's this huge range and spectrum of different technologies and approaches, risks, benefits, cost of all that. Wow. So this, uh, there are lot, lots, lots to unpack there. And yeah, it's, it's, it's just really, what I love is, is for sure the, that first process of just, you know, getting this group together and thinking about, what is the problem? What can we do? And, you know, you talk about planting trees or, uh, you know, changing the pH of the ocean or, you know, all these things, which, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, as engineers, you all, you know, you always talk about, uh, um, you know, you, you can't boil the ocean, right? So you're, you're, you are talking about, you know, boiling the ocean, right? But these are big, these are big, big problems, you know, literally, 
Um, and yeah, again, I, I, I know we won't get into all of the technical details, but you know, the one question that comes to mind is, uh, um, you know, you're, you're taking, you know, you're taking this, uh, call it, you know, waste product or, uh, you know, you know, negative product from the atmosphere, you're, you're pulling it out, you're processing it, but then is this sort of the kind of thing where we, you know, we then have to like bury it like a, like a nuclear, like a nuclear power plant sort of, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the old nuclear product or like, you know, what do you do with it? Or can you turn it into something that's actually useful for some other part of society? Yeah, that's that's a fantastic point. Um, we're still in the early days of the carbon removal industry broadly, so there's a lot of thoughts on on the answer to that question, and I think no one no one knows yet. Um, but so there's there's kind of two main main paths that that people are looking at now, uh, including us. And so one of those paths is is broadly known as utilization. And so when we get the CO two, can we utilize it? Right? Can we put it into some product? Uh, that will have some value. And so these are things such as uh, like making concrete. And so there's actually a, a, a UCLA spin-out company called Carbon Build, uh, which, which was an XPRIZE uh, a winner uh, a few years back. Uh, and they are looking at incorporating CO2 into concrete manufacturing. And so, so I'm not a civil engineer, so I can't get into all the technical details of exactly how that works. But essentially, by including CO2 in the product, you can actually improve the material properties while reducing the total amount of concrete that you need for a given project, right? So you, you actually are sequestering CO2 for as long as that concrete block exists. And you need less of it. So there's actually a, a reduced carbon footprint as well. So there's kind of this win-win. Um, then there's things as well, right? You know, there's companies that are looking to generate what's called like sustainable aviation fuel, you know? So right now, the jet fuel, if you're flying in a plane that, that gets burned is, you know, an oil-based fossil jet fuel um, that goes into the engine and combusts, releases CO2. And one of the thoughts is you can have companies uh, that produce sustainable aviation fuels, or you know these these things called SAFs, S-A-F. Um, and so these are used uh, use other sources of uh, carbon dioxide for the carbon in the fuel. So it still combusts and goes through that same combustion process, but the source is not it's not fossil based carbon; it's some other based carbon. Uh, and so you could, for instance, use carbon direct air capture to generate those fuels. Right now, that's very expensive to do, uh, but I guess all these technologies are very expensive in the early days. And so the thought is, you know, if you can get that where it's where it's cost effective enough, then you can have uh, non-fossil carbon-based fuels, right? So this carbon from some other process that you go through some some intensive chemical chemical engineering uh, uh, process to generate these SAFs, and then you you put that into into plain as well. And so these are kind of some of the ideas that people have on the utilization side. You know, there's a ton of other things out there, right? You know, you could do greenhouses or other use cases. Um, but yeah, there's a handful of different thoughts there. Uh, and then the, the other side is called uh, kind of this is geologic storage or sequestration. And so this is essentially saying, you know, let's take this CO2 and uh, for kind of oversimplifying here, but, you know, just inject it into a well. So kind of do the opposite of what we've been doing with oil and gas over the last century plus, um, right? Where we take the oil out and then we burn it. You can you can find these these uh, you know geologic formations where you can inject CO two. The CO two will react with some of the minerals in there over many many years, uh, and then it will be permanently sequestered for thousands or tens of thousands of years. And so the thought is kind of you know when we get to the scale of we're removing billions of tons of CO two per year, you're going to have to be injecting it. You're going to have to be doing some kind of sequestration because the market is not exist for that much utilization but certainly in the interim you know there's there's a lot of opportunity for for both these paths to be explored more yeah that uh yeah really really interesting and uh you know what what strikes me is um you know we you know and there are plenty plenty of different kinds of you know tech companies here in la and everywhere and you know when you're going out to start a company that's let's say the a new social network or a new you know a new fintech tool or something like that i mean you can you can talk to investors, you can talk to potential team members, talk to partners, and you're talking about something that's kind of, they can see what the current state is and they can, you know, see what your next steps are because they're, you know, they're, they're pretty small, even if you're maybe reinventing an industry. Um, you're talking about something that 
you know, you're talking about thousands of years in the future. You're talking about, uh, you know, creating products that there's no market for, creating, you know, materials that we don't know what to do with, all to solve a really, really big problem. And so, you know, what what does that look like? And I mean, in, in simple terms, but as you start to recruit a team, as you start to bring on investors, partners, how do you tell this story? You know, what what's, you know, where do you start with something like this to get anyone interested? And I guess that's, you know, the side question is, what what stage are you at right now? Sort of, is, is this just you? Is it you and these, uh, you know, these former classmates? Are you guys kind of working on this? Is there a, you know, formal company or what stage? Yeah, definitely. So, so, so our, our, our company is Clarity Technology, uh, C-L-A-I-R-I-T-Y. We have the word air in there. Uh, so, so we're at claritytech.com. Uh, we have four folks on the team right now, uh, ranging uh, in backgrounds from engineering to, to material science and chemistry. Uh, and we are actively looking to build out our team to bring on additional technical folks uh, and some non-technical roles as well to meet our milestones over the next two years. So we just uh, uh, were able to, 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 to close a seed round uh, and we'll be announcing some more details of that in early 2023. Uh, yeah, thank you. It's, it's extremely exciting for us and the team. Um, and so, so we now have some, some milestones and, and, and goals that we're working to, to, to hit on. And so, you know, there's, there's a huge interest in this space broadly from investors, uh, as well as from, you know, individuals looking for jobs, you know. So I think, um, certainly, right, you know, there's the desire for, uh, improving our planet, making the planet more livable. Uh, and, and solving some of the problems that we all see, you know, right? Like climate change, as I said earlier, right, is, is something that's increasingly visible and impactful in our day to day lives. Um, but it's also something that there's, there's a huge potential economic opportunity here, right? And so that's where a lot of these investors and folks come in. Um, and so this is something where, you know, right, if you're talking about removing billions and billions of tons per year at, you know, at the cost of a hundred or so, t- you know, dollars per ton of CO2, you know, this is, this is a market that's hundreds of billions of dollars, if not more per year, potentially trillions of dollars by some estimates. So there's a huge opportunity, right, for the companies that are able to understand and develop this technology to um, to to make a, 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 to, to have significant economic returns while also improving the, the planet and having a positive impact. Um, and so we also see a lot of companies stepping up to support this nascent industry at this time. And so kind of the, the state that we're at is similar to the, the state of the solar industry in like the 70s and the 80s, right? And so when photovoltaics were first being developed, they were very expensive. Uh, it was not clear that it would be a winning technology, but there were folks who understood, hey, if we are going to make a transition away from fossil-based fuels, we're going to need alternatives such as solar. And so there were companies in the 70s, 80s, 90s who were paying well above market rate to install rooftop solar or large solar farms, et cetera. And the benefits are clear now, right, decades later, where now if you're going to install utility scale energy in the United States, solar is probably actually the most cost effective, right? It's probably cheaper to do utility scale solar in most of the U.S. than natural gas, than coal, than hydro, than any of the other other sources because of this investment that's been made over many years. And so there's now groups uh, led by companies like Stripe, the payment processor, Microsoft, who everyone knows, who are putting money where their mouth is and actually buying uh, carbon removal offsets uh, or pre-purchases from companies such as ours um, at prices above market rate, you know, so this could be hundreds or thousands of dollars per ton of CO2. Um, and they realize that by having this market in existence now, uh, they can they can spur innovation and allow these companies the opportunity to grow uh, and follow hopefully a similar path to what's being seen or what, what was seen in the solar industry. Wow. Now, this is uh, um, I, I feel like we, we need to uh... We need to bring you back in in a year and talk uh, talk more about what's happened because there's you know it sounds like you're on the cusp of doing so much and so would would love you know love to follow up on that I guess you know one one question to ask you that I want to ask our you know the the audience is sort of you know how how can LA help uh, you know what do you need right now it sounds like you're you're doing some hiring uh, you know maybe doing some fundraising you know what what do you what do you see kind of being here in LA where Los Angeles can help get clarity off the ground. 
Yeah, it's it's a fantastic place to be with technical and non-technical individuals around, you know, right from the aerospace community, uh, you know, satellites, planes, rockets, everything. You know, there's there's so many phenomenal engineers and, and with all the top institutions in Southern California, right from UCLA and Caltech and USC and UCSD down in San Diego and so many others. There's such a great technical pool for us to draw from. Um, and so we're super excited to, to start early 2021 and, and really continue to, to grow our, our recruiting efforts, uh, to engage more with the community, uh, to, to find ways to, to give back and to, and to be part of both the broader clean tech ecosystem in LA, but also the broader tech ecosystem. So it's great to be on podcasts like this. Certainly, you know, we'll love to continue to stop, uh, by the bioscience LA office and, uh, and share more of what we're working on there. Um, but yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, yeah, and again, I think, uh, you know, as I said, what you're working on, the, the intersection between health technology, life sciences, biotech, and even just health and wellness. I mean, uh, you know, the, when the UN talks about their sustainability goals, there's this such a huge interaction between the, the health of our, the health of our planet, the health of our environment and the health of, uh, you know, of, of humans. And so the more we do to impact the environment, the more we can, you know, we have less of a need to uh, impact, uh, you know, healthcare. So there's a really interesting balance that we're working on. So I think there's going to be lots more opportunities for collaboration around that. So uh, yeah, let's definitely, let's definitely make those conversations happen. Uh, people to reach you, they uh, just go to uh, claritytech.com. Is that the best way to uh, connect with you? Or do you want them to email you LinkedIn? What's the best uh, connection? I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, my name is Glenn Myrowitz. Uh, last name is M-E-Y-E-R-O-W-I-T-Z. Uh, I don't think you'll find too many other Glenn Myrowitzes out there. Uh, email um, through our website. Um, and yeah, would certainly love to connect with anyone who's interested in, in the space or wants to chat more. Awesome. Awesome. Well, well, thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Glenn. Thank you, everyone, for hanging out with the We Are LA Tech podcast. Please connect and collaborate with this community. Uh, go to wearelatech.com slash community to find out more and connect or just go right to social at we are la tech on twitter on instagram on facebook uh, i will see everyone soon glenn really really great connecting and uh, looking forward to keeping this conversation going online and offline so thank you so much thank you dave i really appreciate the opportunity Hi, this is Glenn Meyerowitz, ceo at clarity technology we develop systems to perform carbon dioxide removal uh, I'm based in Culver City, California, and you're listening to We Are LA Tech. The We Are LA Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. Music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The We Are LA Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production.